Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Yes, it's Thomas Stoffer. What uh, heritage is that? It is Eastern European. It is a place in Ghana, Africa. It's mentioned in the Bible. It means theme in Italian and Spanish. It's a lot of things, but none of them really have, have anything to do with me. It's just a name that my mom heard and liked. She was a teacher. One of her students was named Thomas, so that's how I, how I got the name. Well, which lends perfectly to my next question, which is basically, tell me your background. Like, so were your parents creative? Like, how did you come to being a creative person? My father's a sociology, a retired sociology professor. And my mom, I would say she was creative. She did not have a, a art, art practice, but she, she was a very prolific reader and she was very interested in arts and culture. And so my parents got me enrolled in art classes from an early age. I was always interested in art from, you know, the, as early as I can re remember. And so at about, I don't know, even age three or four, I stayed, started taking art classes at the local art center in my hometown, which is Kalamazoo, Michigan. You know, in the beginning, I was taking ceramics and drawing and painting and so on. And but yeah, I, was, I always had a passion for art. And I also played the violin starting at five years old. I played Suzuki violin and I was a big reader. So it was, you know, I was, I was headed, headed down that path from, from early on. Yeah. Wow. You just reminded me, I played the violin at one point in my life, but that was just school mandated thing. Yeah. Well, that, you know, it's interesting because I, I mean, I liked playing the violin, but my, my greater passion was visual art. So sort of sometimes practicing the violin for me was more of more enforced and making art was more by choice. <laughs> well, as it all starts that yeah. way. Yeah. So now these days, like, so I did a little research on you, of course, okay. the, you are a teacher, you are a practicing photographer. So you make your own uh, series of works. Um, you are a curator and you also do writing, but which I want to hear a little bit more about the writing also. Is that correct? Yes, though I now that I'm teaching full time at East Tennessee State University, my main focus during the past few years has been on, on you know making my photographic projects and on teaching. So I did a lot of arts writing ahead of moving down to Tennessee in 2017. I, I I lived in New York City for nine years and for a good part of that time I was I was doing arts writing for various publications there. I worked for an arts website called Culture Hall and I, I wrote about national photo exhibitions for American Photo Magazine and some other publications. And writing for American Photo carried into when I left New York to move to Montreal for my first full-time teaching position at Concordia. And then that pu publication ended sort of midway during my three years there. And so I, I did one article for a, a French-Canadian arts magazine called, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say it right in French, but Ciel or something like that. Anyway, I wrote an article about a French-Canadian photographer. That was the last uh, assignment that I did, and I actually haven't been doing writing assignments since I moved down here, but it, it is definitely a part of my history. Okay. Well, I mean, I've been a professor. I worked at a couple of different places throughout the United States for moving to the Middle East and, of course, now in Prague. So how is teaching in the United States going right now? Well, I've been online for almost a year. So the second half of my spring semester shifted to, to Zoom and I've been living on Zoom, living and teaching on Zoom, you know, for almost a, a year now, but it's actually going smoothly. I had, I had thought it was going to be a harder transition than it actually has been. And, you know, I've been happy to experience that, you know, teaching photography classes, at least some of them online, may not be as hard as other disciplines. And, you know, I, I do think the pandemic has also 
really fueled a lot of creativity in my students. So I, you know, I, I felt like I saw really powerful and exceptional work in the fall that that was influenced by their experiences. So it's actually been it's actually been positive. So what kind of classes like I've taught online for like basic introductory photography and that kind of stuff. But like, I feel like like, like maybe like level one, maybe level two, potentially online. But when you get to higher, more specialized things, I feel like there might be a lot of difficulty. Well, I think it would be very challenging to try to teach. Like, for example, we have a color photography class here and that in that class, students shoot on film and they scan film on our Imicon scanner. So that wouldn't be a class that we would offer right now because it's just simply impossible. But I taught intermediate photo in the fall, which is a you know intermediate level course. And it actually went smoothly. I mean, the, the main thing that's eliminated from the course, obviously, is printing because the students don't have access to our visual resource center where we have our printers. I mean, they, they, they are able to go in, but I, I don't have the expectation that they're printing their assignments and we view all their assignments online. But there were some actually advantages of online teaching that I felt like I discovered that uh, took them on four virtual field trips in the fall semester. And there were things that were accessible through Zoom that we might not have been able to do because of the locations where these things were taking place. For example, two were artist talks of artists based in Asheville, North Carolina. And one was a conversation with a documentary photographer and filmmaker, Rachel Boyo, who's in another part of Tennessee. And the other was with a, well, the other one was on campus. juror and curator of exhibition called the Fletcher Exhibit at the Reese Museum on campus. He spoke with us and gave us a virtual tour of the exhibition that he curated. So it did kind of expand possibilities as well. And that's something that was really cool to discover. And then I I think I can also carry with me, even when we return to the classroom, that there's now we know what, what Zoom can offer and even continue to bring that to the classroom. Well, it's difficult. I mean, these times are difficult for sure, but I mean, it's still also academia. So there are certain like rubrics and standards and things that are sort of set by states, governments, whatever that make it. So you still have to meet certain criteria. They still exist, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the class is not that, you know, it's not that dissimilar from the class that I'm teaching in classroom aside from not printing. I mean, they're still, they have the same shooting assignments for these classes, same number of prints, same expectations in that area, but they're uploading their images to a system we have called D2L and we're conducting these critiques online. But the content of the class, aside from, you know, eliminating the printing component, otherwise it's it's essentially the same course. And I've actually felt that I also thought critiques might not be as, I don't know, somehow as substantive as they are in the classroom, but that that's not really been the case. I feel like we've had some really engaging conversations. I feel like I've been able to get to know my students and connect to them. So it's, you know, again, it's it's been a largely positive experience. I mean, of course, I look forward to returning to the classroom, but but it's it's definitely gone better than I had had kind of feared it might. might. Right. You had low expectations, so it exceeded that. It exceeded my expectations a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. All right. So, something else I noticed about you throughout your career, you seem to have gotten a lot of grants and awards and this kind of stuff. I'm always a little bit dubious, specifically of like competitions that give awards and things like this. So, like, what have been some of your experiences with the whole like entering competitions for and receiving awards? Well, I, I mean, it's certainly a con- something I consider essential part of having a you know a professional career in the arts. You you can't really do that, and in, in, in a sense, without entering juried competitions and various opportunities for artists. And certainly, you need grant support. You know, in in some cases, to make to launch projects and realize projects. And so, I I mean, for every award or grant that I've actually received, there's just so many others that I've applied for that I haven't received. And that's part of the process too. And that's actually something that I really try to bring into the classroom to my students early on. And as soon as our students are kind of 
at an intermediate level, let's say I have an expectation that they start practicing applying for various opportunities for artists and showing evidence of these submissions. You know, I, I did that at Concordia and quite a number of students actually were successful in, in getting their work exhibited or receiving awards. And I've definitely brought that to ETSU. And also with my, you know, we have a small number of graduate students here, and that's something that's an expectation with graduate students as well as the undergraduate students. So it's it's just, it's part of, I mean, making your work is, um, you know, maybe half of the equation, I think, of being an artist and figuring out how how do you get this work exhibited, how do you get this work funded, That's that's, you know, equally important. Yes, that's what I'm asking you. Yeah. <laughs> help help me out well what are some of the tips and, and yeah what are so some tips i guess it gets first of all the more you apply the more opportunities you apply for you know that if that enhances your chance of getting any of these it's just simply you know the more work you put into it the more the greater likelihood of some award it's always kind of a surprise to me in a sense like you know, I, I might apply for 10 things and I only get one, but because I applied for 10 things, I got that one thing. And then that one thing helps open the door to the next thing, because really you're, you're sort of, as, as you build more of a, a CV and you have more of a record of achieving, more of an exhibition record or more of a, a record of achieving awards or receiving grants, the more that those who are looking and evaluating see the evidence that you're able to take that next step and go to another level. And you're more likely to receive the next thing more often as you, as you build, you know, a stronger CV certainly. And yeah, what else was I going to say about this? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But wait, let's yeah. get into the, like the finite thing because I'm, I'm from America. I was raised in uh -huh. the American and taught in the American art system. However, now I live in Europe and I see a very dramatic difference between the approach to let's say grants, the, in America, I felt like, now maybe I misinterpreted this, but I felt like my teachers were teaching me to like be my be a cheerleader, say this work is amazing, this work is great, it should be funded, and this is why. And it was like you were writing a convincing argument to receive the grant. Whereas here in Europe, I have been speaking with many people and talking and, and even applying for some, and they do not want that under any circumstances. It's just, this is what I'm doing. Do you like it? Please fund it there. And yeah, it's like I, well, I'm not aware of that dichotomy. I do know for, for one thing, there, you know, in many European countries, there's a lot more government funding for artists. So, you know, in the United States, well, you know, I lived in Canada for three years and there was, you know, vastly more funding from the Canadian government for artists working there. So it's just common, many, many artists peers were re regularly receiving grants for their work. I think it's very competitive in the United States. It's not as much money coming from the government. So they're, the grants for artists are far and further between and they are highly competitive. I, I guess as a teacher, I would say, I, you know, it's it's not that, I mean, the my primary focus as a teacher is to talk about the bodies of work that students are making, help them grow in that body of work and, not, and give them both, you know, constructive, positive feedback, but critical feedback as well. And really, I think, you know, you, you start to, I, I think it's important to practice applying for opportunities. It's not the main focus for me with an undergraduate students, but I want them to be familiar with that process. The more important thing really in school, I think, is to be developing strong enough work to then when you leave school, you know, maybe apply to graduate school and then, you know, enter the art world and then continue to figure out how to keep this work going. But yeah, I I, I mean, I think it, it is important to kind of understand even early on in education that being an artist is a lot more than just making artwork and that it, it is a it is a profession and it has a set of of it's it's hard work. There are a lot of, you know, obligations that are outside of, you know, just the the creative aspect of making the work. You have to you have to figure out you know, how are you going to get this work seen and, and how are you going to build a community, just extremely important. And how are you going to sort of understand the right kinds of venues and where your work fits into the art world? So those are all things that I think are important to talk about early on as well. 
Certainly, all of those topics are important. But okay, you brought up the term sort of body of work. Um, I, I'm fascinated with this because I I also do portfolio reviews online. That's one of my many jobs that I do. And I feel that a lot of people are really bad with editing. Well, I mean, okay, they're bad with editing as far as like sequencing, choosing the right images, making them somehow visually what I call sort of cohesive. So like they don't have to like look the same, but at least they're speaking the same visual language kind of thing that's unique in that series of work. But the the thing that I want to know is like, what are what some of your ideas of like, what makes for a good body of work? Right. Well, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually something, I think that comment you made about trying to make a body of work cohesive is really important. And that's also something as a teacher that I try to stress early on. So for example, even in an introductory like digital photo one course, the students do various assignments, technical assignments in the beginning to learn the basics of, you know, operating their camera and making exposures and understanding light and shadow and so on, like these various assignments to understand the principles of photography. But the second half of the semester, they create a final project and they actually write a short proposal and the expectation is that it'll be a cohesive series of photographs and they choose the theme of that final project and then they make say 12 images that reflect that theme. So in, in my classes, I try to actually almost all the classes have a kind of final project or for example, even my intermediate photo course, they work on a single project the entire semester and the expectation is that it's a cohesive series of photographs. So I think that's actually important to understand that you're you're not just shooting images but that you're creating a meaningful body of work reflecting whatever theme i mean i, I there's great freedom you know with the, my students in terms of what that that theme is and the style that they're shooting etc but but I, I do think that that sense of cohesiveness is important to stress as a teacher oh certainly i mean yeah i'm on your side Teach, preach into the choir here okay <laughs> But okay, but within that, like what I find is difficult is this, is like, okay, so let's say you make a body of work, uh, 15 images, let's say. That's a, that's a good number, right? Yeah. Okay. The problem is, is like when you apply for, let's say, a grant or a residency or a competition, you can't submit all 15 because they end up saying like, oh, you know, submit five or three or maybe even 10. But like, it's, I feel like like we're encouraged to create these bodies of work, but then we're not able to submit for, you know, funding and support and all these things, you know, competitions, awards, whatever, the complete body of work. So like, that's a very difficult balance because like, you know, should we be making smaller bodies of work to fit the, you know, to be able to create a beautiful submission to these things or is... I, I don't think things? so. I don't think it's about making a smaller body of work. I mean, I think you should make the body of work however it, you know, needs to be made and not even really with that in mind. But I think it's about being able to to make an edit of a selection from that body of work of, of not, maybe not just thinking what are the strongest images, but what are the most important images that are gonna reflect what you're saying with this body of work that might be like, I need to cover these different areas of my body of work so they understand you know, what this body of work. So for example, if there were a photo project where there were landscapes and portraits and interiors and so on, which many photo projects include these different kinds of images that you would want to show something to reflect each of those components of the larger body of work. But I don't, I don't think it's about trying to create a body of work that fits into a certain submission criteria. And also because the submission criteria range, as, as you noted, from you know, various opportunities could be, usually I would say it's the, the, the smallest number maybe is 10, tends to be 10, 12, 15, maybe at the, generally the most like 20 images. I mean, even when you're applying for uh, teaching positions, for example, and you're putting together uh, your application, generally 20 is the number of images of your work or student work. So that that's just part of the process, I think, of being able to look at your own bodies of work and kind of highlight the the most important images to include okay now in combination with that statements i have a long-standing issue with statements 
and and for that matter, <laughs> even titles, but, uh, because it's really hard because like we all chose to go into the visual mediums because probably we're not good writers. You know, we feel like we can express ourselves better through photography or painting or whatever other medium we do. But yet these days we are obligated to also include some text to give context to the work, to whatever. What do you, how do you feel about that? I think it's important. I mean, I think it's an important skill to develop as an artist, to work on your ability to articulate your motivations and the themes of your work. And I think that's, again, as a teacher, that's something that I try to implement early on with even in the intro classes, having them write these short proposals and statements that accompany their images. Because I'm doing this in part because exactly as you said, this is going to be an expectation throughout their career as artists that they're able. And if you if you want to apply for a grant, I mean, you 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 have to be able to talk about what is this work about and why is this important? And really, it's not convincing someone to fund it, but that it's it's compelling, that there's a reason that the, that it has clear themes or relevance just to. So I think that it's actually I mean, I think some some artists may not be good writers, but others might be. And and but regardless, everyone needs to. And even those who are good writers, I think everyone, almost everyone, finds it harder to write about their own work to write these statements than than any anyone else's. Like you know, I've written about hundreds of other artists' work, and yet you know, it, I mean, it's gotten easier for me over time to write about my work because I've done it more and more. But I used to find it just incredibly challenging, but I think it's just practice and experience is the only way to kind of overcome that. And it is important. So, you know, if there are blocks with that, it's just something that I think artists need to continue to work on and also get, get feedback from other people. I mean, even get help. What I try to encourage students to do is try to be objective too about their work in, in a way if they can, like write about sort of step back from the work and write about, you know, the, in a way, describe the work as though you're, you know, making somebody who can't see it, be able to see it and understand it. Like, you know, w w what is this about? Who is this about? Where was this taken? Just fa actually factual things that should be addressed and communicated as well. Sometimes I find these statements are, are can be, you know, too abstract, but it should, if it should be something that if someone who's not looking at the work can read the statement, they have a clear, you know, vision of what this project is about, in my opinion. Okay. Now, but within that, my things that I keep running into, and don't get me wrong, I'm not judging other people for this because I am as guilty of it as everybody else. So when I go to write my statements, I, I always fall into a, a realm of sort of one of two things. And often when I read statements, when I'm doing like reviews and even students' works and stuff like this. It's either way too broad and sort of like they're trying to do this universal thing that like everybody can understand, but yet nobody understands. Or it's incredibly specific to the point that, well, nobody understands because it's so uniquely specific to just them and their experiences that it doesn't resonate very well. So like, how do you find both for yourself, for your own artwork, as well as assisting students to find that like beautiful balance of not too broad and not too specific well yeah again i mean you know with with my own projects i i i guess i i, I also like a, as a, as i give that advice i also try to step back and and sort of break down what are the themes of this body of work how am i going to describe that in co concrete language <laughs> concrete language and, and somehow also communicate, you know, my my motivations for making this body of work. And I, I sometimes write my statements in a third person. So it's not, you know, all I, 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 you know, but that this body of work, this series addresses, examines, explores something. And then I sort of talk about the series in a way as something separate for me. Sometimes I think the part of what can can actually be difficult is when it's you think you're writing uh, almost like about yourself, like that you have to just say who you are as an artist. And I've increasingly tried to say, this is not really about me. It's about this work. It's about, and I've made different bodies of work and they they share 
themes. They're connected, but they're unique bodies of work. And so I'm trying to describe what the bodies of work are about, which is sort of separate than kind of expressing, in a sense, who, who, who I am as an artist, but how is this body of work communicating that? Interesting. Okay. So when we're talking about your work now, you were also represented by, I saw three different art galleries. Is that correct? Well, I, I'm currently represented by Sasha Wolf Projects in New York and in New York City and Tracy Morgan Gallery in Asheville, North Carolina. I have previously worked with a number of other galleries, but those are currently the two galleries that I'm working with. And in fact, Sasha Wolf no longer has a physical space, but she continues to represent artists in, in a myriad of ways. Okay. So what my the question then leads to is that you've done a number of different series of works that are different topics mm -hmm. uh, in different formats and different things like this. When it comes to working with a gallery, like how do they love it when you just like say, you know what, I'm going to, I know you loved this and it sold really well, but I'm going to do a completely different thing. Well, definitely it, whether my work is sellable or not sellable is not really an, an issue for me. I mean, I just, I make my bodies of work and there's literally no thought given and in that process to whether that work would sell or not. And I think it's very unpredictable which, what work is, is going to sell and why and so on. And those are for me, I'm not saying they're not for many other artists, but you know, for, I'm not even trying to make a living in a sense from, from selling work. I mean, I make a living primarily as a teacher and through, I, I'm, I'm actually more focused on funding my projects through, through grants and so on. So when, a, for me, it's sort of a, a happy surprise when a, an artwork sells, but that's not how I'm trying to make a living. But I'm, I'm also at a place where I, I do have a, you know, full-time teaching position. So that that's kind of a luxury in a way to not, to not have that pressure on my artwork to, to have to support me. So, you know, it happens at times and it, but it's not, that's not even remotely consideration to, to what, what work I make. And some of my images have been maybe in a conventional sense, more or less, you know, likely to sell for the reasons that things sell. But again, that that's not, uh, that's not a consideration for me. Wait, I'm sorry. Do you know why things sell? Because I, I'm not sure what that trick is. Oh, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, some, you know, I, I don't want to make big generalizations about that, but I think in, even just talking about my own work, I think there are certain pieces that, you know, could live with people in their, in their, you know, domestic spaces a lot easier than others, <laughs> you know, or I don't know, you know, it's just, again, it's not, it's not really, my head's not even really there in terms of like those kind of considerations about the saleability of, of the work. I mean, I, I hope for the gallerist's sake, especially that, you know, work that's exhibited will sell and that, I mean, but more importantly to me, it's just that work will be recognized and appreciated and, and that it will be, and I, you know, I mean, I think I, I'm in it without getting into a lot of detail. I mean, I had a exhibit in New York that, that both the gallerists and I knew ahead, this is not a body of work that's going to be easy to sell. And, 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 and I, I credit her, with exhibiting that body of work anyway, because she cared about it. She was willing to kind of exhibit this work. And there were, there were other kinds of recognition that for me personally were more meaningful, which was the, you know, it was reviewed in the New Yorker and in other publications. And it was, you know, a project I worked on for five years. And so it was, but, but it was work that would be, you know, it, it, some of it sold, but it is, more challenging to sell. But that's a luxury of having a full-time teaching job. For that sure. is a luxury. I mean, I'm aware of that. And so I, I don't want, I mean, I think many artists are trying to, and should be, you know, are trying to make a living from their pieces and that, that, that they need to maybe take kind of commercial considerations more into account. And I mean, some artists, even if they're not showing galleries are trying to sell their work in many ways now, even through the internet, you know, through Instagram or through, there's so many other ways of, of trying to market your, your work now. And so, yeah, and I, I'm all for artists, you know, making a living, you know, through their artwork. You know, I, I'm, I went down a teaching path for many reasons. I mean, I love teaching, but also it, it's, 
you know, it was pretty clear to me early on that it wasn't sort of realistic to imagine just, you know, living as an artist and, and selling work in galleries and that that was realistic or sustainable. So, and I also didn't, I think, you know, I lived in New York for nine years and, and did a little bit of editorial work, not a lot, but a little bit, but I also realized that wasn't the, really the path for me either. So I continued to kind of move towards, you know, understanding that, that my passion is in education and that, you know, progressively, I was able to, you know, support myself as an artist at, through teaching and that that was a happy solution and that I could make my work and, and seek funding. I still seek funding. I, I apply for grants every year and that's important too, but I'm, I am more focused on, on seeking funding through grants than, than you know, the, the sort of commercial aspect of selling. I'm not judging you at all. Like you are literally living the life that I lead, which was, you know, going through schooling in order to be a teacher. That was my life plan, which got screwed up for various reasons. Some of my own doing, some of other people's doings. But anyways, so, I mean, the idea of being an art, being a sort of a practicing artist and having your full-time job so that basically you can do any project you want versus having that that added pressure of the the, the sales to having to sell uh is very freeing in so many ways like i mean when i had my full-time job uh, teaching i could literally just make whatever i wanted and if it worked great like it made me that that sense of security that came from the job made me more free to experiment and try different things and led me down paths that I never would have been able to achieve if I had tried to be a sales you know, based marketing artist. Yeah. I mean, there, there, I mean, academia has its own pressures. I think you're, uh, you're right. And you know, that there, there's certain freedom about the, that, that you feel about the kind of work that you want to make, but, academia also has you know the pressures of you have to perform you have to finish projects you have to exhibit projects you have to you know show an exhibition record and a show record of you know various accomplishments to keep those positions you know so that was you know something just progressively I sort of came to understand the kind of what are the expectations of academia and how do you sort of fit into to the, this is the world that I'm, I'm really going to try to be in and stay in. And, and that's, you know, not easy. And what are, what are those pressures? And those are the pressures I feel more heavily than, the, you know, I may be a little, feel a little less pressure from the commercial art world, but, you know, I certainly feel the, the pressures of, of the academic environment. Oh God, yes. They when I was my last school, they started using was it Scopus or something like that for. Like, I'm not familiar with that. It's like I don't know. It's some sort of like online thing that tracks academic journals, and they were trying to make us be more like active in journals. And I'm like, but I'm an artist. We don't <laughs> write things yeah. like we have exhibitions, and uh, so my my my. My point total looked like shit because like I had tons of <laughs> exhibitions, but no, none of these sort of standard university quality, you know, quantifiable outcomes that they could come to expect. Yeah. I mean, I got, like I said, I got a lot, I, I did a lot of writing for a long time ahead of, of entering full-time teaching. So I actually do like writing and have practiced at it so long that I'm more comfortable with the you know, expectations of writing within an academic environment. But again, I know that's something that, you know, many artists would, would love to not, not have to deal with. <laughs> Very true. Now, okay, wait, when you write, are you doing like art criticism? I haven't actually published art writing in these few years that I've been in my position at East Tennessee State University. But ahead of that, the kinds of art writing I did for four years, I was a writer and curator for what, what was called an online resource for contemporary art called Culture Hall, which no longer exists. But I wrote essays about various international artists' work. And they were, these essays were, they're called feature issues. And they were 
on the homepage and it would revolved every couple months on the homepage, featuring different artists working, sort of making connections. They were, the feature issues were surrounding a theme. So I would talk about four artists whose work reflected that specific theme. And then after that ended, I started writing for American Photo Magazine, as I mentioned, and I wrote about national photo exhibitions for a feature called On the Wall. So I wasn't, it wasn't criticism in the sense that I, I actually didn't see these exhibitions. I was researching exhibitions that were going to open or at the time that the that particular issue would come out. And it was hi highlighting, you know, what's out there right now in the United States in photography. So I would spend, you know, hours and hours just kind of researching galleries, websites across America and finding what the, you know, pre press releases and information about these upcoming exhibitions. And then I would create these kind of short paragraph, you know, just features about what's going to be out there at the time when American Photo published that issue. So it was sort of saying, you know, this is what's out there right now on the wall, basically. And that was really fun. And then I wrote, I did a number of interviews with various photographers. And then one of the, the most interesting assignments I had for American Photo was when I was still living in Montreal, I went to, to Toronto for an exhibition called the, the Outsiders about American photographers and filmmakers from, I think it was 1950 to 1980. So some of the greats like Diane Arbus and Gordon Parks and so on, and Danny Lyon and, and many others. And I interviewed the co-curators of that ex exhibition, Sophie Hackett, who's the director of, of photography at the, it's called the AGO Art Gallery of Ontario, and Jim Shedden. And that was a really exciting assignment. I, I you know, very memorable um, to see such an incredible exhibition and to interview these two kind of brilliant minds. And, and, and then, uh, the, you know, as, as I said, the last our, our article that I published was for the Canadian magazine. And I, I met with a photographer at a gallery in Montreal, and he did black and white uh, street photography in Montreal for decades. And we talked about his work and then I wrote. So that was, I mean, what I really enjoyed about a lot of those writing assignments, the interviews and so on, was just, you know, connecting to other photographers and understanding their work better. And then, you know, articulating my thoughts about it, but I, I do enjoy writing in it. It's something I do miss a little bit that, you know, but I, I have been giving so much energy to my teaching position and to my, my own body of work that I'm building right now. So, you know, I'd be happy to have opportunities down the road to, to write again. And I may pursue that, but I've been very, very focused on, you know, this, this chapter of, you know, this is my fourth year at ETSU and, and I've been developing, I, you know, the first year I published my first book, uh, Upstate. And when that ended, I began a new body of work called Southern Fiction. And that's, that's taken up, you know, a lot of my focus and energy. The reason why I was asking about writing was because I, I had this thing where I sort of believe like criticism is becoming more difficult. Uh, I don't feel like there's as much intellectual quality criticism being given because a lot of people feel like these days like criticism is basically how many likes do you have on instagram right no that's a good point i think that's that like we do live in a world now so driven and dominated by social media and that i think people's focus is there and that the kind of response to artwork is, as you said, likes and that's amazing or something, but not a, you know, like it's not, it's not, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very different than a serious piece of critical writing about work, obviously not that, I mean, of course people can post links on social media that take their, you know, audience to writing about their work, but you know, yeah, I think it, it they're, there are some wonderful things about social media and some, you know, clearly some really negative things about social media as well. I think we're all grappling with that all the time. You know, it's kind of obliterated my attention span in some ways. It's like, you know, you, you're, you're daily consuming these like short bursts of information 
And, you know, I feel like it, it, I, to, to be able to focus on, you know, reading a book for a few hours, it's, it's like something I, I know that it's my own ability to concentrate has been impacted by the experience of social media over, over time. Well, not just that, but my memory is worse because I like, I could look at something, I don't know, scrolling through Instagram and I'd like, oh, that's really beautiful. And I look at it and literally like, 30 seconds later, I forgot I ever saw it because hmm. yeah. there's just, well, there's just so, much. There's so much yeah. all the time. Yeah, of course. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, cause I, I, countless, I'm always like, oh, you know what? I need to remember to show this to a friend. And like three days later, I won't even remember what the thing was. I'll just be like, there was something I was going to show you, but I can't remember what, like, and it was something on some social media platform somewhere. And so like my, not only is my attention span shorter, but my memory is worse because well, yeah. like, there's just so much to look at. And it, ha and of course it's not a ne negative thing, but like there's so much that looks very similar that, that it's very difficult to also to sometimes differentiate like, Oh, that came from this person, not this organization or whatever. Yeah. And I think it's also, it's a sort of inherently, you know, kind of strange space because you know, many of my communities in, in the in the social media spheres, which for me is is Facebook and Instagram, many of them are artists and and I'm interested in seeing you know news about their work and snapshots or, you know as well and so on. but we're also you're, it's a space where that's mixed in with all your other connections, images of all kinds of other things and all kinds of other experiences. So it's just a, it's a kind of inherently odd <laughs> space of just the, the kind of, you know, various forms of content that coexist in, in this environment. Well, then the algorithm is also feeding you that, right. that loop of like, Hey, you liked this, here's some more of it. So like right. you end up more of what you already like. And so it's this sort of self-serving loop that you end up seeing pretty much the same thing over and over because the, the algorithm thinks that's what you like, which quite honestly, oftentimes, if you use it right, is what you like. So that works. All right. Circling back to the topic you brought up before that I wanted to know about. So as I said, your series of works are a reasonably, I'm going to call it like disparate. Like, so like you have like a series about this and then a series in a completely different location. And, so, and as you said before, there's sort of a common thread between them that sort of all says it was made by you. It's of your um, morals, your ethics, your ethos, your oeuvre kind of thing. But like, but the question is like, how do you choose the topic? So like, you know, when you go from what, when you, especially like when you finish a series, let's say, so like you just published a book a couple of years ago. So like when you're done and it's that big and you've completed that, how do you go, Okay, and the next thing is going to be this. Right. Yeah. So that's that's a good question. So I'll start saying when I finished a body of work at the end of my time in New York City, that was my Patterson series, a series of street portraits I worked on in the years following the economic crisis, and, and that I've worked on in Patterson, New Jersey. So when I finished shooting that towards the end of my chapter in New York, and then it was exhibited a year a year later in, in New York City. But then I moved to Montreal and then I, I was sort of in, in that about a, it took me about a year and a half, actually, when that Patterson project ended and then my new upstate body of work began. And it was I think it took a while, partly because I had transitioned to living in another country and I initially was sort of thinking, am I going to make a new project here? in Montreal. And I did actually shoot, um, it was not a, say a personal project, but I did shoot a series of photographs of homeless shelters in Mo Montreal the second summer I was there for a, a larger kind of collaborative project of exploring homelessness. It was called Where Do You Sleep and exhibited at City Hall. But that, but in terms of actually making a personal project, it took me a while. And I kind of realized that I, I, I have talked about this in our talks too, that I, I became more aware of how central, you know, the focus about America is to all my bodies of work and that I wasn't feeling sort of capable of making, you know, a long-term project about, I, I, I didn't sort of connect enough 
to the environment. I mean, I connected in different ways. I connected with my students, I connected with the academic community, but I, I didn't feel that I could, that, you know, sort of launching a long-term project there. So I was kind of grappling and struggling with that for a while. And then, but I was, my home base while I was living in Montreal in the United States was, was outside of Hudson, New York. My former partner's aunt lived there. And I used to, when I would have my time away from teaching, that's where I spent most of my time. And I also, I had immediately, even when I was living in New York City, was I had started going up there. And that environment really had resonated with me. And it was sort of in the back of my head, I might sort of develop a project here, but I actively started it in the fall, sort of end of fall of 2015. And it did connect to me, to Patterson, though it's different in some ways, there there are connections as well. I mean, I'm talking about kind of post-industrial America and two very very historic parts of you know the Northeast and a part of this in, in this country. The focus on my Patterson project was entirely on people. It's entirely in a portrait series, and that there are a few portraits in the Upstate series, but it is kind of broader about the kind of rise and fall of, of Hudson's economy over the, you know, a couple hundred years, actually. And so I was really interested in, in that history of Hudson. So I kind of jumped in, you know, like I said, at the end of the fall 2015 and just started, I had taken a lot of snapshots there before, but started working with my film camera. And it took a while to kind of figure out where is this project going? And like, I think most projects do, you don't really know in the beginning and it, it, it only takes shape or, you know, you start to understand it through the process of making it. And that's, you know, what happened in this case. And then sort of, I, I began to try to sort of merge different important aspects of that location, specific things about the landscape and about the industrial history and about kind of social economic issues that are relevant to that area. And I, I mean, did a lot of exploring, just spending hours and hours and hours driving around and revisiting locations. And so I worked on that project from I that, I mean, I, I finished shooting it in the winter in the December 2017 or January, sorry, January, very early January, 2018. And I knew at that point I had connected with Daylight Books right as I was starting my teaching position in the fall of 2017. And they had asked me if I wanted to to publish a book with them. And I, of course, said, you know, I was very excited about it. I said yes. And and that was launching in the fall of 2018. So I, I finished the project in the winter and then worked, spent the rest of the year working on all the, you know, many things that you need to do to prepare to realize a body of work in, in a book publication, as well as it was also there were four solo exhibitions beginning in fall of 2018 of that body of work. So I was also producing large-scale exhibition prints of that body of work. A lot of 2018 for me was focused on the book coming out and the shows happening. But in going, it's kind of stepping back in terms of my current body of work and the seeds of that idea, that was actually the fastest like conception of any photo project I think I've ever done in my last spring in Montreal, when I accepted the position at ETSU and knew that I was anticipating, you know, this move to the South or the Southeast, I kind of immediately had this idea. Just, it just kind of came to me that I wanted to explore this, the South through the kind of, framework of of where the you know sort of great southern writers had lived and worked during the 20th century and it just kind of immediately even before I left Montreal I was already researching this and there was a, a website that I found right off the back called Southern Literary Trails and I started researching where these writers live so that that seed was already there before I even moved to Tennessee however because of my focus on finishing the upstate project and exhibiting and publishing it wasn't until the following summer they actually started it and the first trip that I made for that project was a, a trip to Milledgeville Georgia where I photographed I visited Flannery O'Connor's house and photographed outside her house that first time. And I've since gone back and photographed inside, though I, uh, those are not included in the project. But the, one of the 
early images that I shot that that summer is in the project, and that's of the horse barn on on Andalusia Farm, which is the estate that she lived on, sort of later part of her life, where she died, and where she wrote some of her greatest work. And I've made many trips to Milledgeville, and also more recently Eatonton, which is very close to Milledgeville, and that's where Alice Walker was born and raised. And so they actually were in very close proximity to one another. And then I've made, uh, you know, maybe close to 15, 20 road trips over the course of these almost three years to different parts of, of Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama to visit a number of other writers like locales like Eudor Welty and William Faulkner and Richard Wright and in Alabama, Harper Lee and Truman Capote, who were actually childhood friends. I uh, grew up in this tiny town called Monroeville and I've, I've photographed uh, around there as well. So yeah. In cold blood was my first book I ever read cover to cover. Oh yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great one. Yeah. I, I can appreciate yeah, kind, that. Of mor- kind of a morbid start on reading books, but nonetheless, that was my first book. Yeah. But okay, wait. So wait. I want to go back a second though, because okay, so your Hudson Valley series or H- Hudson? It's called Upstate. Upstate. Yeah, Upstate. Yeah. The Hudson Valley has been painted and photographed and and worked on so much. So like the the thing that I wonder about when I think about that is like okay, the Hudson Valley's been documented in painting and whatever other mediums for centuries. So the question is like when you decide to do a project about a topic or a location that has been done before, how do you find the way to make it somehow special, like unique to your vision, especially when it's something that's already been done before? Yeah. I mean, so I was very conscious of the tradition of the Hudson School painters while I was working on this project. I think there's one, I actually visited Alana uh, a number of times and there's one loca- there's one particular image where I actually wanted to incorporate a view of the river that would be the same perspective in a sense that the Hudson the Hudson River painters would have portrayed to acknowledge that tradition. However, I feel like the themes of my work are actually quite different and that that style of painting is very romantic and there's kind of a an idealized, you know, vision of this incredibly stunning landscape. It was absolutely beautiful. But that wasn't the focus of my work was the, you know, like the the beauty. I mean, I incorporate some of that beauty in the images, but the things that I'm photographing, like the factories and the, you know, the Fergary shacks, for example, I mean, that's quite different, I think, than the focus of, of these landscape painters. Okay. So you sort of take on the, the history of it and sort of utilize it in some way. But yeah, then I want to acknowledge it. it and honor it and understand that, that, that this is a, a beautiful region and that it has been beautifully portrayed by other artists. But I'm, I'm trying to, to kind of even acknowledge that in the body of work, but it's also so very different. I think what like the focus is on, on the Upstate series of photographs. All right. Now, what that starts making me think about is how many photos do you take to make an essay? Because like, I've, I've done everything. I used to shoot four by five. So like when I would go out, I literally only had 24 shots because that's all the film holders I had. And then of course I've transitioned to doing digital where I just shoot hundreds and hundreds of photos because well, fuck it. They're free. Why not? You know, (laughs) film and putting the time in and the money for the film development and all that. So like, so I'm wondering sort of what's your practice? Like, so do you shoot a lot? Like, I mean, are you talking thousands? Okay, so I'm I'm entirely shooting film and I sometimes I'm like, why am I doing this? <laughs> because it's so much, you know, no sense, extra work and money. And sometimes I just also want to say fuck it and just shoot digital. But right now, I mean I'm I'm making this project on film and I'm gonna finish this project on film and then you know we'll see in the in the long term. I do love film and and but also with the Hudson, with the upstate series, I thought it was important. Well, both projects are so much about history, and I feel like I wanted to use 
what I think is a kind of more historical, you know, approach and shoot with, I, I'm shooting with four by five. And yeah, some of the upstate was medium format film and about half of it is medium format and half of it's four by five. And this project, the Southern Fiction Project is entirely four by five. And I do shoot a lot actually, and it gets really expensive and I'm shooting, you know, for every one four by five image, I'm, you know, there's, 20 or 30 or more that that don't make or more even that don't make the final cut that is a lot with and and also with shooting 405 there it's a lot easier to make mistakes for things to go wrong i've had you know light leaks and you know just one thing after another after another so there's a lot of extra frustrations but there's also something for me that's extremely rewarding about the process that i really love and it, and i think it does there is a certain investment in making that one image and the experience of making that image with a four by five that for me is quite different than if I were to just to, to, to shoot digitally and to shoot, you know, hundreds of pictures and not feel, I can feel like, well, a little more casual about it in a way. And I think I wanted to feel that kind of really hard work and investment and sort of precision and focus to, to, to make each of these image, both for the experience of that, but also for the final presentation of that to make these large scale prints that have the kind of, you know, richness and detail and depth that you, you can accomplish. And not to say that you can't get many of those things from digital, especially, you know, the, the higher end, you know, medium format digital cameras, I think are great too, but I don't have one, but it, it, it may be something in my future, you know, it's, I'm not not entirely opposed. I'm 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 thinking about it, but I have been committed to film throughout my entire you know couple decades of of making work. Get a grant from the school to buy one. <laughs> right, that's what I would do. Yeah, it's not for me that I couldn't figure out how to buy one. It's just that I'm not ready to do it yet. But I'm not. I might be at some point. I do. I still. I do love shooting for. But but even you know, I just I I had, came back from a trip in the fall and ruined a bunch of four by five film that there, I think, uh, you know, it was a light leak. And I, I had to return to Mississippi to reshoot something. I just, you know, reshot, I photographed in November and I, I went down there again. I was just like, wow, you know, like if I were shooting this digitally, I know right off the bat, you know, that I got this, what it looks like, you know, it's not all this. I mean, some of the mystery of getting your four by five film back is, very exciting and i love that too but sometimes i just feel like you know why do i make things so hard on myself and i just you know see what i got and 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 that's it and i come home and you know so th there's you know there are advantages of both approaches or there are things i'm attracted to about both approaches right now but i'm certainly going to finish the southern fiction project on film because you know it, it's almost done at this point and i've shot the entire thing on film so it's you know in no way, shape, or form am I trying to encourage you to go digital. Like I love analog. I still shoot Polaroid if I can get it. Like I mean, so like I'm all for it. So, but it, it's just an interesting difference that I noticed when I was shooting film. You're much more thoughtful because you go, okay, I only have 36 shots on this, or 12 shots, or, or, or one. Only, if you're shooting yeah. four by five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or I've only got 12 yeah. holders with me yeah. kind of thing. Like, like, and so you're very, so like you're much more thoughtful and precise and you're more patient, yeah. you know, with the light and the, the little nuanced things that can be shot digital. Like when you shoot it, you're like, Oh, you know what? I can just fix that in post-production or right, you know, right, right. whatever. Yeah, so that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. That's exactly what I mean. And, and so I've, uh, I mean, you know, that's, we're making a big generalization. I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, people shooting digitally who are very invested in that single image and, and spend a lot of time with that. But I, I do think there is something, there's something, especially about shooting large format that just the, the time and patience it takes to set up and get everything in focus. I mean, you just, you, you, you really have to kind of commit and make a lot of decisions for that single photograph. And I, I do like that. I do value that. I know. I wish I had my four by five, but I don't have it anymore, but I never actually owned one. Now that I think about it, I had one for 10 years, but that's because somebody lent it to me and never asked for it back. <laughs> so and then when I moved out of the country, I was like, I should give it back to them. <laughs> no, yeah, it'd be rude for me to leave the country with a, a borrowed camera. Uh, you mentioned daylight books. I'm always fascinated, of course, as 
almost every artist and or photographer is fascinated. Like how does one connect with a book publisher and then get a book published? Right. Really important question too. So in this case, what happened is I had submitted images to one of their opportunities. I can't remember exactly what the name of it is right now, but it, it, it's a way that they choose to either exhibit or, or publish photographers through this opportunity, but it's also a way for them to look at other photographers' work. And that's how they had seen the images from the Upstate series. But they actually reached out to me, Michael, who's the kind of like the director of Daylight Books, Michael Ikoff, he just sent me an email and said, would you be interested in talking about publishing a book? And I got that email just, you know, a week ahead of, of starting my fall semester. And, and then I, you know, reached out to some trusted friends who, who had published with them ahead and spoke with them about their experiences. And then, you know, over the course of the next month, Michael and I negotiated, you know, the, the contract and figure out the details of the book. And, and yeah, and then it was, you know, actually extremely positive experience working with Daylight. But in how how other people do it, I mean, that that was my experience. But I mean, I have friends and peers who who, you know, either they've been approached or they are submitting. I mean, almost I think many of these book publishing companies, even on their websites, have instructions about how do you submit a book proposal to be evaluated. And I know, I mean, I I I definitely know friends and peers who have had books published that way too. So I think there are many paths that can lead to a book publication. All right. Two last questions. Sure. First one's a little hard. Second one's easy. Okay. Could you give me the names of three artists that you think should be seen by more people? Sure. Yeah. So, well, for example, one artist that I'll mention is a friend and former colleague whose name is Yolanda Delamo, and she's originally from Madrid, lives in New York City, and she is publishing her first book in this next year with Kara Berlag, a German publishing company, and it's more than a decade of her work, which are kind of a, a hybrid of, uh, I mean, staged photography, it's portraiture, there's a, a some documentary element to it, but it's very strong, conceptually strong work and very sort of, this is also large-term work, very precise and sort of beautifully lit and, and very compelling. She's sort of looking at the relationships between people who are performing characters and looking at the kind of spaces between people. So it's a lot about distance between people, share occupying a space and you create narratives surrounding each image. Another another artist who I think you know worth mentioning is is also a, a, a friend and lives in Asheville part of the time and teaches photography at Rollins College and just had a exhibition this fall at Tracy Morgan Gallery. So we share the same gallery and she just had a beautiful exhibition of it's it's not at all there's no sort of documentary aspect to her work it's more use of, of alternative process and cyanotype and video. The body of work is about grief and mourning and a lot of her own kind of past experiences. And there's a metaphor of a, a yew tree and some literary references she spoke about in her artist talk. That was actually one of the talks that I, virtual talks that I brought my ETSU students to. What was her name? Oh, Dawn Rowe. I'm sorry, Dawn Rowe. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. And do you have a third person? Let me get back to that. It's fine. No problem. Okay. I'll go on to the last question okay. that I asked yeah. everybody, which is just general advice. So anything like specifically what I'm looking for is something that you went through that you hope that the, like the next generation doesn't have to go through something you learned that you hope they don't have to deal with. This generation right now is dealing with something way harder than I ever had to deal with before this year. So actually, I, I really feel for, you know, everybody, but, you know, young, young people, young artists who are the way that the pandemic has 
made their, you know, compromise their education or made it so much more challenging, but then having to kind of enter the world professionally at a time like this, where, you know, it's so hard already to be an emerging artist and to try to get your first teaching positions or to try to get your first exhibitions. I mean, it's just years and years and years of, of obstacles and persistence and kind of brushing off the dust and keep keep going. And so for, for that to be made all the harder now by the pandemic, I feel like, you know, obviously my uh, trajectory in the arts was full of struggle throughout and, and it still is, you know, but I, I'm going to say that, you know, just the, the world I was living in was, was uh, easier than it is in the, in the past year, even if it was hard, it was hard, you know, uh, there are obviously many very difficult things happening and in the country and world, you know, throughout these past couple of decades too, but nothing like this. So I'm going to say that these younger artists have a major challenge and, and I, you know, it's, but, but also as I was saying kind of early on that I felt like my students responded to some of the challenge and suffering and struggle of the pandemic with it really fueled great work. So if, you know, if that's one good thing that can come out of this is that it actually, well, I mean, I think even historically, like political struggles, uh, you know, social struggles, struggles about race, gender, and sexuality, those are also that is an inspiration, I think, for, for artists too. And some of the best work comes out of this. So these kind of challenges. Oh yeah, I've had many conversations where it's basically like, while the pandemic is horrible, I don't wanna downplay that at all. In, in the creative industries, limitations often breed creativity. And so like the different, whatever, you know, financial limitations, uh, space because of quarantines and things like this will, often breed some very interesting outcomes uh, from what we you know deal with and how we figure out how to work within that i yeah i I agree i definitely think so yeah and so that's you know that's one good thing that we can take from a lot of very difficult experiences that we've all collectively had indeed did you come up with a third person it's okay don't worry about it (laughs) it's not a necessary thing it's just a question i you know i I don't think i can do it on the spot maybe you can just ask that question can you think of two artists and then edit it to the two artists that i mentioned is that or does it have to be three to keep consistent no it doesn't have to be anything don't worry i'm gonna leave the whole conversation and it'll be fine it's perfect like the last person i asked i asked for three he only gave me two okay don't worry about it okay it's perfectly fine that I only get two. It's just, it, you know, I like the number three. That's it. So that's why I asked for three. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for well, your time. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was fun. And I look forward to, you know, staying in touch about it. So thanks a lot. <laughs>